Mark 10:32. We'll begin by reading, Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them. And they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Interesting words here in verse 32 of Mark chapter 10. We see the procession of the disciples. They're making their way from the northern area of Galilee, coming down south to Jerusalem. But even though you're coming down south, you're taking a rise up in elevation, because Jerusalem is a city set upon hills. And we know that from the order of events here in Mark chapter 10, that they haven't yet come to to Jericho. Jericho was a city, uh, the first major city on the uh, outside of Jerusalem. And so they hadn't yet come to Jericho and made that final ascent up the hills to Jerusalem. But as they're making their way on this journey, the disciples looked at Jesus and something about the way Jesus walked, something about his countenance, something about his attitude as they made their way on the way to Jerusalem amazed them. Did you see that in verse 32? They were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was going on before them And they were amazed. Now, it wasn't amazing that Jesus walked in front of them. That's not amazing. That was traditional for that culture. In that culture, if you were the rabbi, if you were the leader, if you were the teacher, you walked in front and your disciples walked behind you. It's not like it is today when somebody's a leader or someone famous. You know, they walk behind, and in front of them is a whole group of bodyguards and hangers-on and people in their, in their whole group, their entourage. You can tell the bodyguards, you know, they're all dressed in a particular way and all the dark sunglasses and the little earpieces in their ear, and their eyes are darting about every direction. Usually it's completely unnecessary, but it makes the person feel very important. That there's bodyguards around them. And so there they are on their way. They don't walk out in front. But in Jesus' day, it was common for a person to walk out in front, the leader, the rabbi of the group. So it wasn't his position relative to the disciples that amazed them. Now, what amazed them was, first of all, the destination. Because Jesus knew and the disciples knew what awaited him in Jerusalem. That they were people out to get him, that he was a wanted man. That he was on the Jerusalem Council 10 Most Wanted list. And that people wanted to get Jesus and punish him dearly. Kill him even. Jesus was very aware of this. The disciples were very aware of this. And yet Jesus didn't turn back. He kept going on to Jerusalem. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? I think sometimes we don't uh, appreciate enough the plain, simple courage of Jesus. It took a lot of courage for him to say, I know what's waiting for me in Jerusalem and I'm going. Nobody's going to turn me aside to him. I suppose there's two different kinds of courage. There's the courage of the moment, right? 
You're walking down the street, and as you're crossing the street, a speeding car comes along, and there's a baby carriage in front of you, and you have the courage to leap in front of the speeding car and to push the baby carriage out of the way, and we would all admire your courage. But it's a particular kind of courage. It's the courage of the moment. You just reacted in a flash, in an instinct. There's a whole different thing about having the courage that lasts over a long period of time. If we gave you 10 days to think about jumping in front of that car to push away the baby carriage, you might reconsider altogether. Jesus knew completely what his fate would be in Jerusalem, yet he went there. And I think that the courage of Jesus is especially amazing. It amazed the disciples, and it amazes us. It's especially amazing in light of our frequent cowardice as Christians. Look, without putting too fine of a point on it, I think we live in the age of the cowardly Christian, don't we? Christians are cowards today compared to previous ages. Why, in previous ages, uh, men and women and even children would gladly suffer and die for the cause of Jesus Christ. But at least in the Western world today, where we face so little persecution, there's so little willingness to stand up and be courageous for Jesus Christ. Let's say there you are in your job, and they get together in a, in a team of people, and you know, they say, well, everybody should get to know each other here. We want you to stand up, you know, each one of you, and maybe 10 or 15 of your other co-workers there are all in a little group, and say, well, we want you to go around the room, and everybody stand up and introduce themselves, and, and say you know, just something about you and your life. And so you stand up, and you say, I, uh, this is my name, and, and I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and I'm committed to what God's word says in the Bible, and I'm not a perfect follower of Jesus, but I try the very best I can, and uh, I hope to be able to tell you something about my walk with Jesus in the coming months as we work together. For, For many of us, that's just unthinkable, isn't it? Well, I would never do that, never. Well, why? What else are you going to talk about? I, this is my name, and... I'm a big football fan, and I'm very excited about the Super Bowl this year. And Well, you might be, but I, I hope that there's no comparison about your commitment to Jesus Christ and your commitment to the Super Bowl. You see the difference there? How strange it would seem to us for somebody to actually stand up and say that in front of a bunch of co-workers. I guess there's nothing else we can say that the spirit of our age, the tenor of our times, this is the day of the cowardly Christian. We're afraid to be set apart for Jesus, to be mocked or made fun of. We don't want to offend anybody. When we think about that, it sort of hurts. It sort of hurts especially when we consider how little persecution we face. I mean, you would almost think that when persecution is worse, Christians would be more cowardly. But it doesn't work that way, does it? When persecution's worse, for some reason, Christians realize the seriousness of the moment, and they're more ready to make a stand and say, I'm going to make a stand for Jesus Christ and take whatever lumps may be mine. But it seems that when there's no persecution, I mean, what have we really suffered for Jesus Christ? Well, somebody laughed at me. They said they thought I was stupid. They whisper behind my back. Oh, such severe persecution. It's like being thrown to the lions, isn't it? 
It's just something about that. It's almost as if the less persecution we face, the more cowardly we become. I pray that this, that this year perhaps might be different for us. That at least in our own congregation, God would work in our hearts and start moving us from the spirit of the times of the cowardly Christian and make us into courageous Christians, not obnoxious. Oh, there's plenty of obnoxious Christians in the world. We're not talking about that. But people who would just stand up and be up and up and out and out about their faith in Jesus Christ. It's just a normal part of their life. So they're willing to talk about it. Well, it amazed the disciples when they saw the courage of Jesus, but it also made them afraid. Did you notice that in verse 32? It says, now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Well, here's a wanted man. They want to kill him. They want to crucify him. And you want to walk around, well, I'm his follower. I'm his associate. How many of us would want to identify with a wanted man or, or a suspected criminal in that way? So the disciples were afraid. They were afraid for themselves. But friends, at the very least, look at it here in verse 32. It says, and as they followed, they were afraid. Well, I suppose there's, there's a silver lining to that cloud, isn't there? Because they at least followed. And I suppose this morning, if you're a fearful follower of Jesus Christ, let's just say that's you. Honestly, now, let's be honest. You're, you're a cowardly Christian, perhaps. Well, I hope that at least you'd say, well, at least I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's start with that. It's better to be a cowardly follower of Jesus Christ than not a follower at all. So praise God that you are a follower. Maybe you're afraid like the disciples, but at least you're a follower. But let's not be satisfied with that. Let's say, well, we'll start here. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, Lord God, make me a courageous follower of Jesus Christ. It's a beginning, but I want it to just be a beginning. Look at what Jesus told the disciples in verse 33. He said, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. This is not the first time in the Gospels that Jesus announced the fate that was coming to him in Jerusalem. On several previous occasions, he said, well, I'm going to go up there and they're going to reject me and I'm going to be killed and I'll rise the third day. But it seems like every time and as the day becomes closer and closer, when that fate will be fulfilled, Jesus fulfills more and more of the details in his description to the disciples. One of the striking things that he tells him here in verse 34 is how he will be mocked and scourged. Maybe he noticed how they were amazed at his courage and afraid for themselves. And he says, guys, I want to put it down plain to you. When I go to Jerusalem, I'm not just going to suffer, but I'm going to be mocked and scourged and they're going to spit on me. That adds a whole other element of the suffering of Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus here mentions the shame of his suffering. And in his death, Jesus suffered the most terrible emotional humiliation, and he did it all out of love for us. His suffering wasn't only physical. His suffering wasn't only spiritual. It was also emotional. Jesus was mocked. His face was spit upon. The the holy son of God who was performing the most holy act ever done, people mocked him on the cross and said, well, you're such a great saver, you can save others, why don't you save yourself? And they laughed at him when he hung on the cross. 
Can you imagine that? Sometimes we think, oh, what a holy scene it must have been when Jesus crucified. People reverently praying as he hung on the cross. No. If you were there, you would have heard the cat calls and the jeers. You would have seen a man subjected to utter humiliation, perhaps with the stain of spit still on his face. Humiliated for you and I. What's remarkable about the early church, in the book of Acts, we find Christians willing to share in that humiliation of Jesus. That was quite an evidence of their own commitment and strength. In Acts chapter 5, it says, So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Isn't that a great attitude? Hey, I was counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They laughed at me today because I was a Christian and rejoice in it. Well, they mocked me. Hey, guess what? They're whispering behind my back because I'm a Christian. And to rejoice in it instead of being grieved by it. Now, it's not that the disciples rejoiced in the shame itself. We don't need more Christian masochists in the world. Jesus didn't rejoice in the shame itself. The book of Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that he despised the shame, but looked beyond it for the glory that was beyond it. You see, what the, what the disciples rejoiced in was that they rejoiced in identifying with Jesus. And if that meant shame, well, then that's fine. But they will identify with Jesus and rejoice in that. Now, verse 30, uh, excuse me, I guess we're here at verse 35. It says, then James and John... The sons of Zebedee came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. It sounds like the kind of questions one of our kids would bring to us, doesn't it? And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left in glory. What chutzpah from these disciples, huh? They come up to Jesus, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. I mean, your head almost spins. And they come out and say, hey, Jesus, you know, um, when we get, and they're thinking purely in terms of political kingdom, aren't they? When you're in your kingdom administration, look, this is what we want you to do. We, we want you to put one of us on your right hand and one of us on your left. In that culture, in that way of thinking, the position on the right hand was the place of number one prominence. The, the, the place on the left hand was number two prominence. Of course, I think James and John would have been fighting over which one sat on the left and the right hand. They'd say, preserve us those two positions, please. Again, my head just spins when I think of this. First of all, let's give credit to James and John. Even though Jesus had just talked about his own suffering and humiliation, they say, we believe you're going to reign. I suppose that's a good thing. We look beyond the shame. We look beyond the humiliation. We look beyond the fear. We know you are going to reign, Jesus, and that's a good thing. But it stops being good pretty quick after that. No, instead, they, they, first of all, they want the positions of prominence. And second of all, they're, they're looking at Jesus' kingdom purely as a political kingdom. Your administration's going to be installed soon, and I want to be vice president, and he wants to be chief of staff. Please, put us right in there. No doubt that this was the outgrowth of a continuing discussion among the disciples. Do you know what their number one topic of conversation was? Which one of them was greatest among them? Wouldn't have it been pleasant to sit around the campfire with the disciples? Well, I'm more spiritual than you are. No, I'm more spiritual than you are. Well, no, I'm more spiritual than all of you. And there they would talk about which one was greatest. 
Now James and John, they feel confident that they're the greatest, and so they ask Jesus to confirm their opinion by appointing them to these two high positions. So Jesus responds in verse 38, And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Can you drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Now I want you to notice the answer of Jesus. First he says, Well, guys, you don't know what you're even talking about. I have a cup that I am to drink. Can you drink that cup? I have a baptism that I'm going to be baptized with. Can you be baptized with that? Now the figure of the cup, when Jesus brought it up, it has to do with an Old Testament image of the cup of the wrath of God. You see, when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, perhaps you remember this prayer. He said, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And he asked at the cup, well, what cup? This Old Testament image of the cup of the wrath of God. Think of an ornate goblet sort of overflowing like from a science fiction movie with, you know, bubbles and steam. And God says, you're my enemy here. You must drink this. This is my judgment for you. And what Jesus did was he stood in the place of guilty sinners. That's a cup that you and I deserve to drink. The wrath of God that we deserve. But Jesus said, no, Father, I will drink it on their behalf. Give that cup to me. And Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, if there's any way to let that cup pass in me, then let it pass. But there was no place. The only way we could be saved is if Jesus Christ stood in the place of guilty sinners like you and I and drank the cup that we deserve to drink. So he looks at James and John and says, can you drink that cup? Then he says, I'm going to be baptized. Well, he doesn't mean in the sense of just baptism into water. That word for baptized there, it's the same word in baptism all throughout the scripture. It means to be immersed or to be submerged, to be set under something. And so sometimes we talk about a person being submerged into suffering or submerged in debt or submerged in difficulty. And Jesus says, I'm going to be submerged into suffering. Can you guys take that same baptism? Look at their response. It's classic in verse 39. And they said to him, we can. Well, that's a quick answer, isn't it? How often we speak to the Lord and respond to him thinking we know what we're talking about when really we don't know at all. Look at what Jesus said. You will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism that I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but for those for whom it is prepared. You know, when Jesus said, You will drink that cup. I bet a big smile came over the face of John and James. They thought, yeah, we're going to get it. Me on the right hand, you on the left. I bet a big frown came over the face of all the other disciples. Look at it there in verse 41. When the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. Displeased. Well, then they're going to get it. He said they're going to get to drink the cup. I know that means some kind of special privilege. No, what it means is special suffering. I don't think Jesus was smiling when he said it. You see, James was the first martyr among the apostles. The very first one of the twelve to lay down his life for Jesus Christ. Beheaded by the cruel tyrant Herod. And John? Well, John was never martyred. From the best evidence we have from church history, he died a natural death. But they tried to kill him many times. There's even one report that they tried to immerse John in a vat of boiling oil. Now, that's a baptism to be baptized with. 
but through a miracle of God, he escaped from it unharmed, and he died a natural death. But they both experienced great suffering, and they did drink from that cup, and they were baptized with that baptism, but not in the sense that they thought of, even though the other disciples were very jealous because of it. And so Jesus realizes he has to teach the disciples about greatness again. Verse 42, but Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. You know, Jesus says, James, John, all of you disciples, the fact that James and John are so excited about what they think they've received, and because the disciples, the other disciples are so jealous about what they think they've been denied, it shows that you don't look at leadership and status and power in the way that that God's kingdom does. Look at it in the way that the Gentiles, the ungodly do. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. The desire for position and status shows that they didn't really know the nature of Jesus yet, at least in respect to power and authority. It's a very subtle thing, a very dangerous thing. Those who exercise power or authority in the church today as lording it over others, they still don't understand the Jesus style of leadership in life. And that's why Jesus says to them, you notice here in verse 43, yet it shall not be so among you. That's a stinging rebuke to the manner in which the modern church looks to the world for its substance and its style. Jesus says the church is not to operate the way that the world does. You know, the power structure, the the, the politicking, all of that stuff, all of the attitudes towards power and authority that there are in the world, it should not be so in the church. Not at all. Instead, Jesus gives another way to go. Look at it says in verse 43, But whoever desires to be great among you shall be your servant. That's the path to greatness in the kingdom of God. You see, the kingdom community, status and money and popularity, those aren't the prerequisites for leadership. That's what we look for in the leaders in the world. You look for talent and power and popularity and money. No, not in the kingdom of God. Humble service is the prerequisite for service in the kingdom of God. Who's servant of all? It's amazing here. He says, verse 44, Whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. See, in the way that the world thinks, your status, your power, your authority is demonstrated by how many people serve you. How many slaves you have, so to speak. How many people are your servants? Well, that's not how it is in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, your place, your standing is determined by how many people you serve, by your own attitude, what kind of servant you are. This is so contrary to the way we normally think. We're afraid to be servants. Usually we're afraid to be servants because people will take advantage of us. Say, oh, I know what will happen. I'll make a resolution right now. Okay, this year I'm going to fulfill what Jesus said. I'm going to be slave of all, servant of all. 
then somebody else will come along and say, oh, so you're a servant, huh? You know, I always wanted one of those. Come, be my servant. Wash my car, mow my lawn. Do whatever I want you to do. You're my servant now. No, but you see, when we think in those terms, we really don't understand what Jesus is speaking about at all. Look at what he says and how he explains it in verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. That's the real marking point. Real ministry is done for the benefit of the people being ministered to, not the benefit of the minister. Many people are in the ministry really for what they can get from the ministry. Sometimes it's material. Oftentimes it's emotional. What emotional props they can get from people to help spur them on in their life. Jesus says, no, that's not how you should do ministry. You should do it for what you can give to people instead of for what you can receive. Because Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. What a revolutionary change it is in your life when you come to the place where where you come to church, you come to a meeting of Christians, not to be served, but to serve. Well, you know, when you come with the attitude to be served, it's very easy just to become a connoisseur or a critic. Well, nobody's serving me. Or they're not serving me good enough. Or I liked it better the way I was served before. Why can't they serve me again that way? Well, and it's all about you. But when you come with the attitude that says, no, I'm coming to serve others, not to be served, but to serve. What an incredible difference that is. Then you start living in what Jesus talked about, where he said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. If you want blessing from God, well, I'll go a step above that. Do you want more blessing from God? He just didn't say it's blessed to give than to receive. He said it's more blessed. I just don't want to be blessed. I want to be more blessed. And it's more blessed to give than to receive. That's exactly the attitude that Jesus is speaking about here. Of course, I can't pass over this last line in verse 45 where he says, and to give his life a ransom for many. This is one of the great claims that Jesus made about himself and his ministry. He's the one who stands in the place of guilty sinners, and he offers himself as a substitute for them. He says, I'm going to give myself as a ransom for them. It's a beautiful picture. He says, listen, I've come to stand in the place of guilty sinners. It's as if you're a prisoner in a jail or a prisoner of war. And I'll come and I'll offer myself as an exchange. Now, oftentimes people are ransomed for money, right? Well, here, I'll ransom you from your captivity. Here, I'll pay your kidnappers this much money. And that's the ransom. And then they'll give you back. Well, Jesus says, no, I didn't ransom you with money, but with my own life. I gave my life as a ransom for many. At one time in the church, centuries ago, there was a group of Christians who were so committed to this idea that they would go and where they found somebody who was in slavery or somebody who was a prisoner of war, they would come and they would say, I'm a Christian, I will take their place. You set them free and I will be under bondage to you. Because they said, I will give my life as a ransom for you. That's what Jesus did, except on a far, far, almost infinitely greater scale. He's liberated us by giving himself as a ransom. And now he's on his way to Jerusalem to do exactly that. Take a look here at verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. 
And as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What a beautiful picture there, isn't it? Again, Jericho, the last significant city that Jesus would go through before he arrived in Jerusalem. And next week when we start off in Mark chapter 11, you'll see Jesus in the triumphal entry in Jerusalem. But here he's passing through Jericho on the way through there. And the crowd is thronging. Many people are going up to Jerusalem at this time because it's right before Passover. And there's crowds, hundreds of thousands, hundreds and thousands of people heading up to Jerusalem. And they're all excited. And they're very excited because the spectacular teacher and miracle worker from Galilee is going up there as well. And there's an incredible excitement in the crowd. And you can almost see the whole crowd pulsating, sort of throbbing down the street of Jericho, making their way out of the city and on the way up to Jerusalem. And there sits a man named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. He's blind. He has his apron or his outer garment, sort of his robe out in front of him. He laid it out in front of him on his lap, hoping that people would throw a few coins on it. Money for the blind. I'm a blind man. Can you help me? I can't work. I can't provide for my needs. Would you give a gift unto a blind man? God will bless you for it. And there's blind Bartimaeus out there in the middle or on the side of the road when he hears this commotion going on. He can't see what's going on. He's blind, but he hears the commotion. His ears are well trained, right? And so he hears, and he hears, well, it's a great crowd, and they're very excited, and he can pick out a name. He picks out a name that people are saying, it's Jesus. And he goes, Jesus, I've heard of this Jesus. Why, he's healed many. I've heard he's healed blind men. I heard he healed the blind man by spitting on the ground and making mud with his fingers and putting it in the man's eyes. I hope he doesn't do that to me, but I hope he heals me. (laughs) Bartimaeus doesn't know exactly where Jesus is. There's a huge crowd of people, but he knows Jesus is somewhere out there. So what does he start doing? He starts saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he goes, well, he can't hear me. It's because of the crowd. So he says it a little louder. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. No response. So he keeps saying it louder and louder each time. Pretty soon he's screaming, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus is passing by. Once he's gone, he's gone. He has to get Jesus' attention. But he's a blind man. He can't wave. He doesn't know which direction to do it in. Now look at the people around in verse 48. Many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus would not be denied. Don't tell him to shut up. Jesus is passing by and he needs to get Jesus' attention. The more you tell him to shut up, the more he's going to scream out. People must be going, dude, what's wrong with you? He said, I'll tell you what's wrong with me. I'm blind And the person who can help me is passing by, and I need him to stop. And so he cries out all the more. And let me tell you that the persistent and the energetic nature of Bartimaeus' prayer, it's a good example of prayer for us. He wasn't discouraged. People told him to shut up, but he wouldn't stop. He wouldn't stay away. No, he would go, and he prayed, and he called out to Jesus with all of his might. Friends, sometimes that's how we need to pray. Sometimes our prayers are so tepid, so lukewarm before God. We hardly care about the thing that we're praying for. 
Friends, sometimes in prayer we need to come to the gates of heaven and act like we're shaking them with all of our strength and say, Lord, I'm knocking at heaven's door here and I'm not going to stop knocking until you open up with your answer of mercy. That was the spirit with which Bartimaeus prayed. Charles Spurgeon said, Cold prayers never win God's ear. Draw your bow with your full strength if you want to send your arrow up as high as heaven. Friends, that's exactly what Bartimaeus was doing. Nobody could shut him up. Everybody was probably embarrassed, but not Jesus. Look at it here, verse 49. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. The the whole crowd, it's throbbing, it's pulsating down the street. All of a sudden, Jesus stops. Wait, stop. I hear somebody calling for me. I hear, this guy won't shut up. I'm going to stop. Bring this man to me. Then he called for the blind man. Verse 49. And they called to the blind man saying to him, be of good cheer. Rise. He's calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. Again, as would often be customary, I imagine there's a few coins on that garment as he laid it out in front of him. You know, money for the blind. Bartimaeus didn't care. Throws it aside. The coins jingle aside. He stands up and he, he, he makes his way the best he can, stumbling, feeling. Guide me to Jesus, please. Somebody take me to him. Look, verse 51, and Jesus answered and said to him, what do you want me to do for you? I almost imagine Bartimaeus turning to somebody in the crowd and saying, is this guy for real? Can't he see that I'm blind? Hello, who's blind, me or you? Isn't it obvious? Why would you ask such a question? No, it's important for God to ask such a question because it's important that we be specific in prayer. He says, verse 30, 51, excuse me, verse 51, the blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. You see, when Bartimaeus called Jesus Rabboni, it's a strengthened form of the title rabbi. It essentially means my Lord or my master. He's in humble submission to Jesus. And he says, I'm done giving the general request. Have mercy on me. That's a general request. But now he wants to give a specific request that I may receive my sight. And friends, sometimes our prayers fail before God because it's not specific enough. We just sort of throw up very general prayers towards heaven. Maybe we're drawing the prayer, the bow with full strength, but we're not aiming it at any target. No, no, Jesus says, here, pray a specific prayer. What do you want me to do for you? Well, what is it? Oh, Lord, bless the world. Just bless them all, Lord. Lord, all the unsaved people in the world, just bring them to Jesus, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, can't we narrow it down just a bit here? How about for someone you actually know who doesn't know Jesus yet? But for your neighbor, or your relative, or your friend, let there be a power in this specific nature in your prayer. Jesus asked you today, what do you want me to do for you? So Bartimaeus said, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. Verse 52, then Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. Isn't it beautiful? First of all, his faith has made him well. How did the faith of the blind man save him? Well, first of all, it saved him because he was determined to reach Jesus. That's the kind of faith he had. It was faith that wouldn't take no for an answer. I must have Jesus. I will not let Jesus pass me by. Secondly, it was faith that knew who Jesus was. He's the son of David. 
Thirdly, it was faith that came humbly to Jesus. He said, have mercy on me. Fourthly, it was faith that was submitted to Jesus. He called him Rabboni. And finally, it was faith that could tell Jesus what it wants. He said, please, that I may receive my sight. You notice this. This is wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. First of all, it says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. Jesus told him, go your way. All right, that's in verse 52. Go your way. And what did he do? He followed Jesus. Because now he says, Lord, your way is my way. That's my way. It's to follow after you. Isn't that beautiful? It's as if Bartimaeus said, listen, now that I have my sight, I always want to look upon Jesus. I don't want to look anyplace else. I'm never going to let you out of my sight, Jesus. I'm going to follow you. What makes this especially significant is where was Jesus going? To Jerusalem to die. And yet Bartimaeus says, I will follow him. I will be right there with him. Friends, do you want to receive something special from God? Maybe for some of you, you've never settled that the matter of your, of your life and your eternal salvation before the Lord. Then come to him the way Bartimaeus did. Maybe for some of you, you, you're crying out for a blessing before God. You're crying out for revival in your personal life. You sense that you need it. Then come to God the way Bartimaeus did. Or maybe, maybe for some of you this morning, there's some particular need, some particular difficulty or trial in your life, and you're crying out to God to meet your need. Then come to him the way Bartimaeus did. God will bless you and And praise the Lord, you'll be blessed to follow Jesus and make his way your way. Let's pray right now and ask God to cement these things to our heart. Father, we ask, Lord Jesus, that you'd give us your wisdom this morning. You'd give us a sense of your spirit and your presence. And Lord God, as we follow you, we want your way to become our way. We want to mold and shape and conform our path to yours. So, Father, I pray that you'd give us the heart and the spirit of Bartimaeus, that we'd follow after you, Lord, and seek you every day. Lord, I pray especially for the person who feels great need before you. I pray that you'd give them the heart and the spirit of Bartimaeus to come, and without reservation, Lord, to cry out before you and say they need you. Father, I pray for the Christian this morning, they... They're convicted, Lord, because they look at their life and frankly, they're ashamed because they're a cowardly Christian. Then, Lord, like Bartimaeus, we come and we cry out before you, Son of David, have mercy on us and change us from cowardly Christians into courageous ones. For your honor, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.